angel investing is really not like going on E-Trade or Robinhood and picking stocks. If you identify something which you think is an opportunity, you have to fight for that or nobody's going to make space for you. And I have a long list of companies that ended up being phenomenal, which I identified just a little too late or I wasn't persuasive enough or not attractive enough as an investor. And as a result, you know, I'm not an investor in. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy Twizzlers, a.k.a. Rabbi Cantlers, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. I'm eating a lot of Twizzlers these days. Do you guys eat Sour Patch Kids? I love them. In today's episode, I talked to Ohad Pressman of StackBit.com. But what intrigued me about Ohad is he's been doing angel investing on the side for quite some years. And I was like, how do you actually do it? And how does actually money work with it? I've done it myself, but it's kind of random. So if you've ever been curious about angel investing, you're going to love this episode. So three gigantic things you're going to take away from today is number one, how do you actually get people to come to you, or maybe you shouldn't, for angel investing? Number two, what is a skill or trait that makes you really successful in angel investing? And three, you're going to hear about some behind-the-scene deals that Ohado has done with some really, really interesting companies. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show, go sign up for AppSumo.com. It's a company we started 11 years ago. It is the number one site online for software deals. So if you are looking to start or grow your online business, even go to sign up the newsletter to find out what are the coolest tools that all the kids are using. That's AppSumo.com. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Trojan1. Looks like Trojan1. He left a review saying, one of my favorite podcasts. I, every time I'm listening to Noah's podcast, I get new energy. Well, I love you listening. It gives me energy too. Thank you for your feedback. If you want to shout out in a future episode, leave a review wherever you're listening to this show. I check every single one of them. What is up, my Jewish friend? <laughs> Shabbos, Shabbos. <laughs> Shabbat Shalom. Did you grow up in Israel or here? Basically, I was in Israel until I was 27, except for kind of the ages of three to six, where I was in Switzerland and Paris and um, moved to San Francisco in 2007 when I was 27 and have been here since, but didn't grow up in the States, had family in Atlanta, so I visited every year. And so I got a little bit of Americana, but I'm just good with accents. So it's not like I'm not, I wasn't born and raised in the States. Yeah, if you're born in Israel till 27 and you have an accent like this, it's pretty impressive. I can also speak with the accent, which is like very spoken. Uh, I come here to maybe you have a problem with your look. Maybe I can tell you a mezuzah. You know, in Israel, we do things very differently. In America, everyone is very, everything is in the box. In Israel, there is no box. You do outside box? I buy the box. I sell you box. Good price. Exactly. You know, I have a friend. A Russian friend who probably moved here at a young age, and he's like, yeah, I spent a couple of years in Israel when I was 20-something, and I realized there are too many Jews there. <laughs> you know, we're all, all trying to trick each other. It's, uh, here, it's much easier. Because <laughs> it's, it's kind of weird. I guess when you trick them in Israel, you like see them at the synagogue or you see them at the market because it's so small. Like, ah, shit, I'm sorry about that, Moshe. Moshe, yeah, which happens to be like my third cousin. All right. I was at the infantry with them. There's not many of us, but we're so annoying. Like the amount of Hebrew that I hear on the street. I love languages and accents. So I will like notice people speaking a bunch of different languages and especially Hebrew on the streets of San Francisco. And that's everywhere. And you know, like this thing, there are all of these concepts like Chabad houses. Everywhere you go, like the smallest, you know, shithole anywhere, like there's someone who grew up in the States or in Israel and speaks Hebrew and like, sets up a place which is like we will help you with anything that you need and if you want to feel like you're close to family or something like come hang with us whatever yeah um that's like a distributed network of something it's kind of amazing i guess in israel i don't know how you felt i know in america growing up jewish like i was the only one that did hanukkah in schools and 
I always thought it was kind of cool that we had this like weird thing that no one else was doing. For us, it's very, very different. You know, that's why the experience of an Israeli coming to the U.S. and getting to kind of like colliding with how Jewish Americans kind of think about their relationship to Judaism or all of that is so different because for us, it's so everything is like so well ingrained. The holidays are like not practiced religiously. It's just like Thanksgiving here. Like these are the holidays. A lot of us are like non-religious, you know, we're secular. So when we come here, it's like the holidays are on one hand, like a much bigger deal, like a lot more of the ritual and the story. And we kind of miss our kind of like Thanksgiving version of these holidays, which like they just, they happen and we, we do them. And um, the relationship with religion for the average American Jewish person is much more about religion. When for us, it's much more about just like a way of life or a uh, like belonging to a group of people. And it's like who we are, we're surrounded by these people. And that's just like, that's it. It's kind of like finely ingrained in us. And here it's like very either celebrated or kind of like, we don't go to synagogue in Israel. No, they don't. Like, all my family in Israel, like, half my family's there, and none of them go to, none of them are religious. I guess I was just reflecting on the Mormons. And the Mormons seem like, business-wise, they're really impressive. I don't know if you've met a lot of Mormons. They're, one, they're always nice. You don't have to pay for their alcohol because they're not going to drink. But they're very successful, too, and they're always so pleasant. And I, just, I guess these, like, small groups of organizations that have land for themselves seem to, to thrive in some manner. I spent a week with my family recently. I was like, wow, I can see why, you know, I get my neuroticism from. And then I kind of was like, oh, it's interesting that our culture is so like that. And I guess even thinking further than that, there's such a difference between an American Jew and an Israeli Jew. It's like a very kind of different type of Jew. Yeah, I mean, there's interesting similarities very much. But also just, yeah, like the relationship with religion and like what do you identify with and how do you define yourself? Obviously, as an American, before you define yourself as a Jew, and I define myself as an Israeli before I define myself as a Jew. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. And the thing is, you know, like being Israeli, I mean, Israel is kind of like, it has people also that are Christian and Arab and, and a bunch of other religions, but it is like mainly Jewish. And so like, when I say that I feel Israeli, it's like that kind of carries with it a lot of the kind of low-key elements of the um, of the religion. The cultural aspects of the religion, which are the ones that interest me the most and I relate with the most. The neuroticism rather than the worshiping of God. You relate to it or you experience it? Well, I <laughs> experience it, yeah. But like, I mean, I don't, you know, worship the Lord, but I, I like the cultural aspects of the religion. It's like, I think it's interesting when you didn't, you don't get chosen into this stuff. Right? Like you didn't get, I really wish I could get born. I don't know how, what I, I mean, I'm almost glad I didn't get born and I could choose all the options. Like, it's nice when you buy a Tesla, it's like you get the same, you get a Tesla and you can have like nice rims or not nice rims. Like, it's kind of nicer that way versus, you know, you want the stereo and the color. It's like, oh, shit, man, there's just a lot of. So I don't know if I would choose Jew again. I'm trying to think. I definitely probably choose like a little bit taller. <laughs> I mean, like I'm five, nine, a quarter, five, nine, to five, ten, six foot roundup. But like, I'm trying to, I think I'd probably choose Jewish. It's pretty fun. Do you think you would choose all your, your options in your model? Yeah, you know, I think most of us tend to be like kind of pretty happy or develop an attachment to kind of our roots and who we are. So I, I would probably, yeah, I'd go with that. Like the one thing I don't like is, you know, the persecution or the stigma. That's the one thing I don't like. Everything else I'm okay with, even the downsides, you know, like you know, we, the infighting and everything, that's that's okay. But like 
anti-Semitism is like, I really don't like that. What did the Jews really do? Maybe they're a pain in the ass. I don't, I don't know. You know, maybe they're just like this incessant pain in the ass, out of the box. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to use superlatives because like Jews are not smarter or better than anyone else. But there's something, you know, there's something. Or maybe it's like the world needed a scapegoat. I don't know. There are a bunch of scapegoats in the world, you know. So it's like it's not Jews are not unique in the kind of negativity that they sometimes kind of attract. Yeah. There are a lot of other minorities that are persecuted which don't get uh, as much of the publicity, if you will. Just interesting in our, our society how it's come to be that way. And, and I guess I was thinking about how there's no bagels in Israel. Yeah, because it's a Jewish New York thing. It's not an Israeli thing. You have all of these paths, right? Because Rogalach clearly exists in New York and clearly exists, you know, in Israel. And hummus, which, you know, we borrow from Arab countries and popularized for ourselves in Israel, is now like kind of a big thing in the U.S. And like all of these things are constantly happening. What do you think more people can benefit from understanding Jews? And then what do you think Jews can benefit from understanding other cultures better? I don't have a good way to think about this, but um, sit and watch some Woody Allen shows, you like in movies, you know, that's probably <laughs> a great primer. Yeah, I don't know that I have something smart to say. And what I mean, Israelis can definitely learn a lot about you know, multiculturalism. And it's like, on one hand, like, we really love traveling the world and everything. On the other hand, we live in this kind of like unique situation where like, mostly everyone around us is like kind of the same. And we kind of amplify our differences, right? So like Israelis of Ashkenazi heritage versus Israelis of Sephardic heritage, you know, that's like a big thing in Israel, or it used to be, hopefully not that big of a thing. And our relationship with the Arab world, right? And so we like to think that we're very important and kind of the center of the world. And unfortunately, that's kind of uh, amplified by like news, media, like kind of unnecessarily, you know, like stop talking about Israel. Stop making us feel so important. Well, it is interesting because you don't hear about it on the news as much anymore. You know, that's great. I don't know about you. Like, I don't hear about like the wars, the strikes as much. I think, you know, maybe 10 years ago you were hearing about, holy shit, like going over there must be wild. But now I've actually had more friends like make Aliyah to move there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that that I kind of agree with you. But I think that the obsession with Israel didn't go anywhere. And it's just shifted to now the like the the personification of like the relationship between Netanyahu and Biden and like the the constant election cycle in Israel, and, like the, the situation with Iran. So yeah, it's less about where our rockets flying, because that's just status quo. I don't know, I was I opened the New York Times or Axios just like a couple of days ago. And it's like, three of the top things were like Israel or Netanyahu. It's like Trump. It's like he loves the attention. Just stop it. <laughs> I don't know. It's a very interesting culture that uh, we were born into. How is it coming to America when you're 27? It's fun. You know, you're independent. You're mobile. You're interesting to other people. There are a lot of opportunities. There's like a new world to learn. It was very organic, which is another kind of like very Israeli thing versus, you know, perhaps the general idea of what the American way seems to be uh, just like you know, careful planning and thinking and researching and so forth says so like i got in a plane and landed in san francisco i mean did you have like a job or money or what what was the the plan you no know, i didn't i didn't have any you know any any money in any kind of significant way but i had a couple of things working for me i had already kind of built a name for myself as a um technical slash entrepreneurial person without really planning i kind of ended up creating a consulting business. And so I had these consulting clients that wanted to hang out with me and, and have me help them with some stuff, you know, mainly tech companies of varying sizes. And so that created a pull towards here. And the second thing, which I was just very fortunate, 
was that I had family in the States. And so I had to spend time in the States. And so it wasn't, didn't feel like a foreign country to me. I mean, even disregarding the fact that a lot of countries in the world consume American pop culture. And so if you throw any random person in America, they're like more likely to understand what's going on versus if you throw them in Afghanistan or Switzerland or something like that. That's interesting. I guess you were used to change and things not being as comfortable so you can figure out ways to get situated. I think that's more of an Israeli thing or maybe even a Jewish thing, like don't get attached. This is a whole other story, right? This like love-hate relationship with being an immigrant, I feel is like a very kind of Jewish thing. It's like we have a relationship with with immigration and living in, in countries that are not where we were born and just feeling mobile, right? Like there's a backstory, deep, deep backstory rooted in, you know, hundreds of years of experiences, which boils down to be ready to move. I don't think about it that way, but I think a lot of us maybe kind of have that in our bones. Like if we need to, like we, we can. How'd you get these clients? How'd you come to the States with all that stuff lined up? Not, not as much lined up. It was initially just one client for like one month. And I was like, oh, like I would love to work with you. But like, there was a client that had an office in Seattle and an office in Finland. And they wanted to work with me enough where I could say, no problem, but like, I want to work out of San Francisco because it's close to Seattle and because I could travel to Europe if we need. And it's like, and, and for my personal interest, like, I'd love to be there. And so if that works for you, like, let's do that. It's not that I came here to meet a client or something like that. I just came here because San Francisco was interesting. And I've never been to the West Coast, or maybe I, I was at the West Coast once before. Because uh, as a kid, most of the time, you know, New York and family on the East Coast. One thing that was very uh, influential for me was, you familiar with the Foo Camp? Yeah. Is it still going on? I don't know. Actually, I've never been to it. But there's a um, there's guy in Israel by the name of Yossi Vardy. And uh, he's a very long story behind him. He was Israel's, you know, one of the first uh, secretaries of energy or whatever. But most importantly, his son started ICQ. Yeah. And he was the main investor for ICQ. And so he was like, he helped his son and, you know, his three friends kind of negotiate like that massive deal of selling ICQ to AOL for 400 million bucks. And Yossi Vardy is a very, very, very intelligent and connected person who loves creating communities. And so he copied the idea of FooCamp and created it in Israel and called it Kinnernet right around the Kinneret, the Sea of, uh, of Galilee. And um, it's been running for 15 years. And I was fortunate to get invited to the second one. And I've just met, made a ton of friends and connected with a lot of, from the Israeli perspective, foreigners who came for these kind of Israeli food camps and kind of built a network of super creative or talented people, a lot of them in tech, but a lot of them like in art and publishing and politicians. And, and Yossi was able to create an experience uh, for all of us that brought us in kind of at a similar level mentally. So we, it was able to have us kind of disarm ourselves from our ego and previous successes and enable us to kind of connect me at a time, just like a, you know, at best, you know, promising, you know, technical whiz kid or whatever, sitting there forming long-term relationships with like publisher of the largest newspaper in Israel or like people who are very big tech companies and so forth. And so that was very fortunate to get that. That was really helpful. And so that gave me like a couple of connections here in San Francisco. You know, one of the things that I think most people are fat is like, how did someone get started? My story is, um, you know, self-taught software programmer, super passionate, discovered my, my passion for computers and software at a relatively young age. 
at a relatively opportune time when the internet was just getting started and technology was just kind of really starting to accelerate. And later on, discovered a passion for entrepreneurship and later on, discovered a passion for investing. And so those are like the three main things that I've been doing over the last 20 years. And with some of them, I've been fortunate. And with some of them, I've been a complete failure. Like someone asked me once, and I kind of enjoyed that question, like, what do you do? And I said, I want to do this. But like, what's your trade? Well, I'm not a, I'm not a blacksmith or I'm not a carpenter, even though I, I wish I was. But like, yeah, I guess I'm a software engineer. I think originally I got kind of curious just well, to meet you because we're in uh, the same WhatsApp group, but more of the investing stuff. Yeah. So it's, I've been getting pings from people who, um, for whatever reason, think that I can be helpful to them in realizing their passion to invest. And so it's mainly people who come from like an engineering background and they're programmers and like a startup that I may be related to or as part of an ecosystem that I operate in in some way, shape or form. And um, they read my story or we talk about something else. They're like, hey, Ohad, can you tell me about angel investing? Because it's a subject that feels kind of foreign and aspirational for a lot of people. And I went through my journey and it was a lot of fun. And like a lot of the other journeys that I went for through, it was like, mostly self-taught and you know took time and and i think that there's a lot that can be taught or like uh, a lot of barriers that can be removed for people it's like if you want to talk about that i'll talk about that for hours so i want to get into the angel but i'm curious to jump how did you come from your consulting to you have even enough money to angel invest um consulting became successful at some point i ended up selling the the, the consulting business acquired enough kind of technical assets and we had a customer that ended up having to acquire us that's a company called Chegg. It's a $10 billion company. And they acquired my company when it was when, when Chegg was still private. And that was opportune as well. I didn't come from any kind of unique financial means or, or background, you know, blue collar family, great parents, but like we weren't wealthy in any way that, you know, enabled me to have like a trust fund or get money from anyone to invest. It's like, it's all it's kind of like you, I, I'm assuming, right? It's like it's all you. Us and the people that, that have worked with us and the, the client, all that. Like we do, you know, we did initiate it, but there's part of it is somewhat of luck that like I was born in the Bay and then I met like, you know, Andrew Chen and I met these different friends of mine uh, that, I've, you know, we've helped each other along the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, you can't ignore, you know, the whole ecosystem around us, but the root is like your initiative, and your desire and your ideas and your ability to build and motivate and energize and execute and, and so forth. I had realized, you know, before I, I was able to invest, that these people I'm surrounded by, it's like they're pretty good at what they do. And so I had developed this thesis of if I just invest in my friends, you know, that's like, it's probably going to work out pretty well. And so that is not exactly what I ended up doing, but that created the desire to get into the motion of investing. And investing was, you know, as part of tech, it's like it's something you are aware of. It's, you know, it happens all around you. And so it's, uh, um, it wasn't a foreign concept, but it wasn't anything that I had practiced before. My first opportunity came with, um, with a friend who started a company called Innovid, which is today like a large, massive video ad network thing out of New York. And he didn't let me invest. He's like, no, no, I don't want to take money for friends. What if it fails and so forth? And so that was, that was like, it's kind of like you have to fail a couple of times to really get you into, into the group what works and what doesn't work but it kind of taught me about being you know the importance of being motivated and persuasive and you know it's not like this isn't like angel investing is really not like you know going on e-trade or robin hood and picking stocks it's like you have to fight 
for the right to be involved with uh, with these companies. Often, sometimes you're lucky and you're just like, you bump into a company which you really believe in and nobody wants to give them money and it's just like, you know, it's yours for the taking. But uh, very often, especially in, you know, in recent years, if you identify something which you think is an opportunity, you have to fight for that or nobody's gonna, you know, make space for you. And I have a long list of companies that ended up being phenomenal, which I identified just a little too late or I wasn't persuasive enough or not attractive enough as an investor. And as a result, you know, I'm not an investor. In. Do you want to highlight some of your favorites on that? Yeah, yeah. So like Notion, Retool, probably the two biggest, I mean, you know, Notion's a unicorn, Retool is likely a unicorn. And um, I had bumped into both of them as a user. Most of my investments have been me bumping into a product. Absolutely not me getting a call from a friend who's like, oh, how do you want to invest in something? I've, uh, I've actually lost money that way. And so I really kind of believe in just like me being a bowling ball kind of through the world and bumping into interesting opportunities and just trusting my gut to evaluate them. So it took me 10 minutes with Notion to be like, this is going to be really big. But I, I kind of discovered them like maybe a year too late. So they had already taken some funding and like they couldn't care less about OHAD. You know, another important thing to realize is like, well, what value do you bring? And at what stage of the company are you relevant and interesting? So you know, like you, an internet persona, are probably relevant at much broader set of company stages than I am for different reasons at different timing. And so it's just important to recognize like, what do you bring to the table and what's going to get you into the deals that you're interested in? Yeah. Why did they say no to you? Notion didn't even get back to me. It's like they just couldn't care. It was just too late. Imagine me emailing, you know, Airbnb, you know, once they've already raised money from Sequoia. I said, they're not going to reply to that email or care about that. So it wasn't that way with Notion. But Did you go and cold the Notion or did you try to do a referral? No, cold. Oh, interesting. Really? You didn't think to like, look who knows someone that knows someone there? I probably tried as well and didn't find because the, the, the Notion founders are like elusive. I, I'd even say reclusive. And so I probably had like no connections to them. And like, I've tried with like other companies where I couldn't get to the founders. Um, I've tried through connections, but if I need to do that, if the founder isn't replying to my email, it's probably a good indication that it's not the right stage for someone like me. Uh, I, got, I thought you were also going to maybe imply that they're not the kind of founder you'd want to work with. Uh, I think first of all, work with is a big, is a big word. You know, it's like I'm at the end of the day, I'm, you know, investing into a company and just writing a check. And so Sometimes a company is just amazing. You just want to get in on the deal. It's not always like an expectation to actually do like to, you know, help and contribute beyond just like writing the check. But um, no, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it disqualifies um, them in my mind from, you know, not being an attractive company. Like sometimes situations will happen. I don't want to be associated with those types of people like that. That'll happen, you know, but it's, it's not as common. It's kind of funny, you know, it's like most of my successes have been the result of me discovering something, usually that I have some level of insight in cold calling founders, building a relationship and investing. And I say that, you know, like those are most of my successes, except for those that did not come that way. Because it's like I like to think that that's how I got most of my successes. But actually, like one of my biggest successes just was I just answered the phone when it rang. What was that one? It's a company called Domestica. You probably haven't heard of Domestica. They started as a destination for people to study online courses on subjects in the field of design for Spanish-speaking people. Um, it's like very, very, very specific and vertical. Today, they're probably en route to being the largest course provider, online course provider in the world in subjects other than design and languages other than Spanish. 
I met the company at a, a later stage than most other companies that I'm involved with, like you know around a round with like very 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 strongly demonstrated product market fit and growth and modernization and everything kind of in place. Started by a person with you know a lot of experience in in bootstrapping companies, and he decided to kind of like take the leap and become venture backed. And I was very fortunate to be one of the people that he emailed. How did you find them to begin with? I didn't. I didn't find them. It's just, it's just a person that I had a relationship with through a mutual involvement in another company. It's just like you know, no. If I'm if I'm stuck on something that's related to like online marketing or building a persona or something like guess what? I'm going to email you, right? So for whatever reason, I sat in that box for that person. Oh, that's good. I'm writing that down. And then you kind of realize that if you think about angel investing, like what is angel investing? Like probably the most important thing is this term called deal flow. You want to be able to have deals to, to look at, right? And deals can come to you or you can hunt for deals and you can partner with people that like they give you calls like, hey, Noah, you know, like there's space in this round for this company. Are you interested? And like, there's your deal flow. Venture capitalists, they think very meticulously about deal flow because without deal flow, they don't exist. Um, for me, angel investing is a hobby. So if I don't have deal flow, I just, you know, don't invest very well. That's fine. Like I don't, work hard to build deal flow. And so my deal flow is the result of like organic relationship building and my curiosity around companies and, and so forth. And I kind of like it. I don't know if I if I would be like a good full-time investor because it's just happened very organic to me and I really enjoyed it that way. Like I wasn't purposeful in becoming an angel investor, but I, I guess it happened and I enjoy it. And now I guess to a certain extent I am. I want to go more on the deal flow part, but I want to jump a little forward. I'm curious on the economics of this. I've done four angel investments and my checks are generally, I think that's what they, the angels call them, their checks. Even though it's not a check, they should call them their wires. What check size do you usually like to do? Yeah, what check size? It's so weird that it's that. It's like, how much money are you putting in? Uh, mine are like 10 to 25K. So it's, you know, it's all relative to some people. That's a lot. Some people, it's very tiny. But I've only done four, Teachable, Buffer, Huckberry, and Circle.so. And it's all been products that I've used and I knew the founder. And then I don't think it was as intentional. Like, hey, here's like 100K I want to go allocate towards investments. And then the economics, the, the specific question I was kind of bringing up is economics fucking suck. Kind of. They suck except for when they don't. And then they're like, you know, batshit crazy. Yeah, because like Teachable, I put in 10K. And then five years later, I think they sold, like, I don't know if it's public, so I can't say that number, but I ended up getting 60K. But the reality, like Buffer, I think I put in 10K about 10 years ago, and I've never seen anything. Buffer is kind of a unique company because, you know, the main question is like, what's the exit strategy there? But if you ignore that, I think they, they're obviously a very successful company, right? Yeah. Well, I think the thing that people miss on angel investing, they're like, oh, this guy put in Google or Uber very early and now it's worth a hundred billion. But I think they, that the story that's missed out on is generally that takes like 10 years. And the reality of that 10 years is that almost all the investments don't work. And it's one that kind of does this like disproportionate. Totally. And, this, and, this, and the thing that you said, like, I, I like to generalize that rule. It's like the best investment by definition take the longest to, to materialize in terms of like the returns. Because if it's a great company, it'll continue growing and growing and growing and growing. And it's another year and another year and another year. And it's like, come on, guys, like I'm, I'm going to die. What's going on? You know, and so a couple of things, right? And the, and this question of like how serious do you wanna do you wanna take this? Is this a hobby? Is this like a big hobby? Is this a career? You can't stop because you know if you're like I made a couple of investments, now I'm waiting to see what happens. I want to know if I'm a good investor. You know, I want to get some feedback. You know, the feedback loop is so strong. You kind of have to make a decision 
if you want to take this seriously, you can't wait. Because if I wait now for five years before I get some more concrete results for whatever my cohort of investment, I'm going to create a five-year gap in returns sometime in the future, more or less, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, how do you think about the economics? Or how are you? And is this not your full-time thing? I don't do this full-time in any capacity. But I do consider it like, a, you know, like one of my hobbies, which I really, really enjoy. And I do it as much as I, you know, as time permits. I mean, usually it's not something that takes a lot of time, especially if you're very organic about it. Like I don't go hunting for deals. I just go about being OHAD and I bump into stuff and I talk to people. And that tends to be beneficial to investing, company building and everything. I'm, I'm sure you kind of have a similar experience, you know? Well, it's kind of like this Riverside FM. I was talking with, with Gary Tan. He's like, here's a deal that I thought was really interesting. And then I think you were, are you in Riverside? I put together the seed round. So basically, yeah. It's just interesting as he mentioned, and now I heard about the company and then I've connected with the founders and it's kind of wild how that, that all comes together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I love it. I love, I love kind of connecting with the founders um, early on where they, when they still pick up the phone when I call, I love investing in things that I can really imagine being big and successful, you know, getting excited about something. And so this is a lot about like, I guess the, the, um, your outcomes as an angel investor are going to be dependent on, you know, your deal flow, your ability to get into the deals, your judgment, and multiply that by a ton of luck. And that's kind of the outcome. So like, I have a lot of investments that aren't going anywhere or, or are going to return 2x, you know, what, what I invested, you know, after five years. Or I, I had an investment that, you know, three years later returned 91 cents on the dollar. And I had a couple of investments that went to zero. And that's just, that's part of it. But the, yeah, the economics, obviously, you know, um, for those who haven't kind of thought about angel investing is that it doesn't make much sense to invest in one company because chances of any single company to succeed are, you know, very, very, very low. And so you want to have what's known as a portfolio, right? You want to diversify. You want to have a little bit of this company and that company because it's really hard to predict which one is going to be the big one. And the dynamics are that most of them fail and one of them kind of returns the whole fund. And so let's say just if we pick numbers, let's say you have $100,000 and you invest $5,000 checks into 20 companies. It's kind of likely that like 10 of them will go to shit. Five of them will return a total of $40,000. Two more will return another $100,000. And like two of them will return $3.5 million. Again, it's not everyone's result and it's not necessarily my result, but it's just like a way to think about this, right? So, and it's impossible. It's really almost impossible to like figure out who those two are going to be when you invest initially, when you're like, I'm going to be investing in some companies. So that's the big picture portfolio and, and the dynamic. That's why it's so exciting. You know, it's like any one of those could be like a hundred X return. Do you have a, like, al not algorithm, but like hypothesis about what you choose to invest in? Yeah, to a certain extent, you know, it's, it's, it's broad and it's maybe just a set of, you know, loosely held, um, you know, rules. I don't love investing in deals that other people bring me. It just hasn't worked too well for me. I mostly love investing in things that I bump into because I, I read a lot. I try a lot of things. I'm curious, you know, like curiosity is very, very helpful when you're an investor. That's the main kind of path for me to invest in a company. I emailed them out of the blue after I discovered their product. A friend told me about the product. Not a friend told me, hey, I have this deal lined up. Do you want to join? Um, like if Gary Tan called me with deals, I'd probably invest too, but like it doesn't happen. And so I've kind of adjusted my behavior accordingly.
And so that's like my main, my main way. And, you know, every once in a while, I'll invest in someone who reached out. I love investing in friends. I missed out on making a lot of money by like not investing in some friends. It's a massive mistake. Which ones? Hippo Insurance is a company started by a very, very close friend of mine, my oldest time friend from school. And it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar unicorn and it's a phenomenal company. And I'm not an investor in it, even though if I sent the email or something, I probably could have been. But at any rate, I invest in, in things that, that are that kind of incoming, but preferably from people that I already know. I'm not going to invest in stuff that I just don't understand at all. You know, like I'm unlikely to invest in like a crypto company or in um, drone based deliveries or something that I, I, I have a hard time extrapolating and kind of relating to. But everything else, like if I'm excited about it and I can see the business forming, it's like, I'm, I, you know, I consider investing. Well, I want to hear some of the big wins, big losses. It's funny. I guess I don't swing, but I'm not that active on it and I don't swing much. And my hypothesis is really, am I paying the company money and am I using it regularly? And I think Circle was the only one that's kind of on the fence where I use it, but I don't really pay them. But if it's a company like Stripe was one that AppSumo was a big customer and I talked to those guys a lot on AIM. Uh, or maybe Skype, you know, old. And I was like, hey, we should probably invest in you guys. Like, ah, I don't know, maybe. And then, you know, they went on to raise Series A afterwards. And then, you know, Stripe is pretty big. I guess with that being the case, one thing I, I'm always fascinated, I think a lot of people are, is like, how do you, you know, appreciate the deals you did get, but also not dwell on like the ones that didn't even, even come close or the ones you tried but didn't come close? Yeah, I mean, the, the number one thing that I see with people who are kind of curious about becoming angel investors and this has happened to me with so many people, right? Of varying backgrounds, people who are extremely wealthy, people who are just getting started. A lot of people feel that they need permission from someone to go and be angel investors. And um, it's almost like there's this funny picture of a donkey tied with a rope to a plastic chair. And it's like, it's all in your head. You know, it's this photo running around in circles in Facebook or something like that. You can imagine like a donkey, which like he could just walk somewhere, but he feels that he's tied to something and it's stationary. And so he doesn't go anywhere. He doesn't even try. A lot of people, you know, they kind of like, uh, they don't feel uh, courageous enough to email the founder of the company. So, okay, let me tell you the story. Okay. And this is very, this is like fun and also a great, a great example. Okay. First investment I ever made, a company you may have heard it of called If This Then That, IFTTT. How did it happen? I'm in the car with a friend of mine. And he's like, uh, I'm talking about like, I, I want to do something online. I need to connect the company. Oh, look at IFTTT. It's like, what does it do? It's like, oh, it does this and that. It's like, cool. It's like every other developer in the world like had that idea, but Lyndon Tibbetts was able to productize it. And so I go to IFTTT. It's like, oh, this is super cool. This is super cool. It's like, I've been thinking about investing and I've tried to invest in that friend and didn't, it didn't succeed in everything. And this was during the acquisition by check. And so I like, I emailed them and I'm like, Hey guys, like what you're doing is super, is super, super cool. And I don't see anything online about you having to raise money. And so like, I'd love, I'd love to invest in and be associated with you. And then I come to like, write the second paragraph. It's like, I'm Ohad. And it's like, what do I write? I'm a dude. My mom thinks I'm smart. Like, what do you put in there? <laughs> I've, been, I've flown to a lot of cities. Yeah. It's like, you know, my, my parents told me I could do anything. So let's make this happen. <laughs> you know? And so I mumbled something and it's like, they're very nice. And, and just like, ignore me, obviously, you know, like, sure. You're excited. That's great. Like, we don't, 
we don't really care, you know, we're just gonna, some dude, we're figuring our, our shit out, like, we're getting traction, this is, this is fun, and then I, like, I persist, and I persist, and Lyndon, who's the founder, sends me to his brother, Alex is a great guy, and Alex kind of, like, what's the term in English for, like, lightly rejecting or something like that, I don't know, so they gently reject me, and I, like, I don't give up, and, you know, there's this thing they say about Israelis where, like, if the door is locked, we enter through the window. And so I sell my company and there's nothing published. And then, like, two weeks later, TechCrunch finds, like, a, you know, something that Chegg had to file, like a Form D or something like that. And it goes on TechCrunch that I sold the company. And the first thing that I do is I email Linden. I'm like, I'm legit. Let's talk. Are they, did they get acquired or what, where are they at now? Because they were definitely like hot. Iftar are, are independent and growing and, um, you know, went through phases of finding their purpose in life, but like the massive consumer adoption. And, um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it's going to continue being a great company. I want to give it more of an example, uh, of like, you know, you do not need permission from anyone. You just need to kind of find the opportunities and reach out and try to be persuasive and try to be charming and try to be valuable, you know, because think about the person on the other side, you know, who cares about Ohad? A lot of people don't reply. No one ever sends me emails to invest in AppSumo. I'm still waiting. You know, maybe it's because you broadcast such a persona of like, I'm independent, right? Which I I subscribe to, I love. Can I invest in AppSumo? Do you want to? Probably, yeah. I don't know the details. Like if I need to use my gut and have two seconds to decide, then yeah, of course. Actually, we've been thinking about selling some secondary shares because the company is generating so much profit and revenue and grow it. Like we've opened up our marketplace and I want to have the team and our customers be able to own a part of the company. I mean, the team, a lot of the teams do, teammates do, but I want more of the teammates and I, you know, I'd like the customers if they want to believe in us long term, but I don't really want it to be public because I don't want to have a lot of rules. I'm with you. I love that. I have one of those companies of, of my own, you know, it's, it's just like private and running and not as successful or growing as yours. But like, yeah, I mean, if it's open, like I, I'd love to, I'd love to invest. There's a, a friend of mine emailed me and he's like, Hey, you want to invest in this real estate uh, apartment building in Austin? And I was like, sure. How much? He's, he's like, well, we're doing this. And I put in a hundred thousand. And then my friend, Matt Brazina, who's in the WhatsApp group now, He's like, so did you read any of the terms of the deal or anything? I'm like, the private placement material or whatever. Yeah, I was like, not not particularly. He's like, well, did you know they did this? I'm like, I, I didn't really know shit. I just know I like the guy. And literally right after Matt, I texted the guy. I was like, yo, wh- what are the terms? Like, do I get an interest? Do I get a return? And then I felt better because it was actually better than I expected. But definitely not as much due diligence uh, as I think other people. So I'm curious for you, like, what are you asking? And then how, what do you decide? So we can let's just do it now. It's fun because, you know, with a real estate deal, you kind of have the downside protection. Like there's an asset there. Like it's, and there's a house, you know, at the end of the day, you own a part of that house or whatever. With startups, it's, you just have to assume that they're going to fail. And with a company like yours, it's like, you know, I would like be curious about, well, what's the trajectory? Like when would I see my money back? Is it, should I expect dividends for like a certain number of years or for life if the company like continues to stay alive and be successful or? Is there like a likely exit point at any point in time? So those are the things I'd be most curious about. And then it's just a, a question of price. It's like, is the price good or fair? Or I mean, you tell me. What is most likely to transpire with this company over the next, the next 10 or 20 years? Do you think that you will ever sell it? Do you think you'll ever take a public? Do you think it'll be a cash machine that distributes dividends forever until you get bored with it? Maybe like, how do, how do you think about it? That's probably the most important, you know, question, because just like you said, you know, like as an investor, like, when am I going to like, 
I investing in something that's going to produce like monthly dividend payments or yearly dividend payments? Or like, am I investing for the long term and I expect to five or 10x my money or something like that? We've talked about it. I think there's definitely ego attached to going public. I don't think we've really looked for acquisitions. I think as this marketplace takes off, I do think something like Amazon makes more sense to acquire. Like, hey, we can now have a a huge software business. It's something we're always open to. Literally, we were talking about earlier today. It's like, we're open to it, but we haven't said this is our end goal. So that, yeah, as an investor, I think that's definitely... Some companies are like, I'm here to sell the company. And that's never really been my intent. I want to find work I can do forever. Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't have to be under the roof of, of this company. You're not necessarily the company. The company's not necessarily you, right? Like you exist outside of the company. You could continue doing a lot of the stuff that you enjoy outside of the outside of the company. But let's get, let's get to the meat, you know? Like, what do you think this company is worth? At what valuation would you sell shares right now? I don't know. Originally, like years ago, even maybe a year ago, I'd be like, if someone offered 100 million for the business, I would that would be life-changing. So I'd probably, I would consider it. I don't know if I'd, I think the idea of selling fractional is interesting. 100 million seems low. You said you're, you're considering doing secondary. I'd, I'd be open to it if the numbers are high enough. I think if someone came in at like a quarter billion, it's just enough that I'm like, holy shit, yeah, that could be some wild numbers. It would be a nice kicker if the company grew faster, but generally speaking, I don't think that's crazy. The way I would evaluate it is like, well, you're investing to get a return at the end. And in the meantime, there's a sweetener, which is you're going to get these dividends. Don't obsess about the profitability. Just assume that that's a great signal about the health of the business. Don't think about how much money you're going to make off of the dividends. Just think about the end goal. And then what are the terms you generally ask for? Like, I realize I don't even look at it. I just, I'm like, yeah, like Riverside, like this thing or... Um... Yeah, I, I usually do seed deals, which means that companies are very early in their journey. They may have developed some technology, a product, maybe some early traction, maybe some early revenues, but like a lot of risks are still there. And so these companies are typically valued at anywhere between, uh, you know, one and $10 million, like one and 10, like so a million dollars, $5 million, $10 million, whatever. Those are typical valuations for companies at those very early stages. And, um, you know, if you invest uh, $50,000 at a company at a valuation of a million dollars, you get 5% of the company, more or less, depending on whether it's a pre-money or post-money. But the terms are pretty like standard. There's not, there's not no real magic. You don't really get a lot of rights, you know, give us money. We give you shares and like, that's kind of it. You know, one day, hopefully you can sell these shares for much more. You don't really get to tell us what to do or how to do. And we don't, we don't even need to update you, right? Like most deals. But like, if you're a bigger fish in a deal or you syndicate the deal or you take the board seats, I, you know, I, was the, I put together the uh, seed round in Netlify, which is today a very, a very big company, you know, Netlify. They're a um, Jamstack hosting company, and um, they coined the term Jamstack, which in developer parlance is kind of a new way of thinking about how to build websites and scale them and so forth. And, and they're, you know, really, really successful. And it's the first time I joined the board of a company, and I'm, you know, which I'm still on. And so that was a very, very different experience but it only came after investing for 10 years at these angel rounds where like nobody cares about you and nobody necessarily bothers to update you or anything it's like at best when the company gets acquired you get an email um, or if it shuts down so yeah i guess that's like an example of the other side of the spectrum so it's closer to like vc deals you actually negotiate the terms and you have rights and you have information rights and you may have veto rights or whatever Typically, angel investors like will not experience that. It'll just be you want to write a check for ten thousand dollars, twenty thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars. Just you know, wire the money here, and that's it. 
the company kind of needs to become a unicorn for this to be a home run for you. You know, a lot of times, honestly, Ohad, with money lately, like this morning I woke up and I was I was going to buy that Dodge coin thing two weeks ago. You know, you heard about all this shit and I didn't end up doing it. And then uh, this morning I was like, oh, I probably should have done that. It would have been worth a lot more. And then I just try to sit with it. And I was like, Noah, you have more than enough money. And so I try to just honestly, it kind of set me free. I don't know if you as a Jew, but I, I feel like a lot of times I have weight on my head. Like, should I do this thing? What about that thing? And if guilty or, and it's like, ah, just let it go. I have a friend who is extremely, extremely, extremely successful. He's talking to me about like selling a used car and how he researched and how he, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, and it is, and it's not that he enjoys it. He just hasn't, he hasn't adjusted his thinking just yet. You know, which is maybe what you're describing. Dude, I I definitely have that. Like, so I get calls about like, hey, what do you, should I spend $50 on this thing? And I just, I try to really do like anything under a thousand dollars, just be okay with, fuck it. Just, it's fine. I like to describe it. There's a sentence I think I coined. It's like, you don't have to pick up every dollar you see on the floor as you walk by. I pick up pennies, dude. I'll fucking pick up anything. I'll pick up a wrapper, you know, clean up the street. I, I think with some of the investing though, I think there's also another angle that I've been enjoying that I'm. It's just one, you kind of be a part of something interesting. So like doing a new technology, doing Riverside or crypto or anything, you kind of get to learn. Uh, so I think there's a lot of value in that. I, I mean, it's been fun with the angels. Like I get, I, honestly, just seeing how the companies run, I get so much insight. Like Huckberry and Comeworks and Buffer. The only thing with Buffer, I invested to learn all their inside secrets, but they put it all public. <laughs> yeah, why did I pay for this? I didn't have to pay for this. <laughs> all right, my brother. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Are you guys doing Shabbat at all? likely you know it's yeah that's the thing we don't celebrate as much of these things because they're so kind of like ingrained but um we're gonna rest maybe i don't know always work to do yeah good chatting congrats on everything thank you you as well man you as well i didn't even get to hear about Stackbit, but we'll do another call super exciting but yeah we'll talk about it next time that is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as i did if you're curious to learn more about ohad go to stackbit.com as well, you can go check them out at OhadPR. That's O-H-A-D-P-R.com. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's go buy a bunch of candy together. <laughs> and before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel, yada, 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 youtube.com slash okdork. You know what to do. Also, if you are a creator or you are starting a business, go to appsumo.com. It is the best site online for entrepreneurs and you can use Noah 10 at checkout to get 10% off all amazing deals already. Finally, a couple of shout outs to my amazing team. Jason at podcasttech.com. He makes these podcasts sound so much better than the original version. David Mitchell, Jeremy and Jen from the Dork team for making everything happen. And finally, a shout out down under to Damien Hodgkiss, who's our senior engineer. I'm kind of doing South African accent, but it's, he's at Brisbane. So the engineer at AppSumo team. Thanks for rolling out the AppSumo Select toggle feature that improves AppSumo's shopping experience. Damien, you know I love you, man. Appreciate everything you've done with us. All right, y'all. Have a great week.